Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their name on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to shawl, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Good morning, everybody, and uh, welcome again. My name is Steve. I'm the associate pastor here for this community. Today, we are back in Psalms. We've uh, spent a couple of weeks in the Psalms so far this fall, and they all sort of build on each other. So if you've missed one, if you haven't seen one of these before, you can go back and can listen to those, watch those through our webpage, or you can find those pretty easily. And what I want to do now is just pause, and we'll pray here for a moment, and then we'll get into our conversation on today's Psalm, which is Psalm 16. So pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you grateful for the opportunity to be here and to gather, to worship and to take communion and to hear your word. And Father, we know we bring in many different things into this place, lots of big questions about things going on in our world, and so we just ask now that you would quiet our hearts and our minds so that we can hear your word and receive what it is you want to speak to us this morning. Help us to be people who choose to focus our attention on what is real and true about the world, even in the midst of whatever it is that we are going through in life. We pray all of this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Psalm 16. To get us started this morning, I want to talk about cups. So hold on a second. I have to get my props out of here. You had no idea there was a trap door in here. It's pretty cool. I have two cups here. I actually have three cups. Don't pay attention to this one. All right, this first cup is actually more of a mug. And on this mug, it says, Boston University Dad. I'm actually more of a Boston University husband than I am a Boston University dad. But many of you know, we did college ministry in Boston for almost seven years. A lot of that was at Boston University. And when we left to come here to Oakland to be a part of the Regen team, my students gave me this mug because they like to make fun of me. but also as a thank you. This is a mug that you can probably go to the BU bookstore and buy probably several thousand of these kinds of mugs out there in the world on dad's desks and shelves wherever they keep knickknacks and gifts from their kids, probably all over the country, maybe even all over the world. But this one is a one of a kind. There's only one like this one because my students, they wrote on it. They wrote notes on it. Some of them, again, making fun of me, (laughs) but some of them expressing gratitude and definitely some inside jokes. And then they all wrote their names on it. So again, you could go to the bookstore, you could buy one of these mugs, but this is a one of a kind. There's only one mug in the world like this because of what they put on there. Now, this is a red Solo cup. (laughs) You've probably seen one of these before. You've probably 
enjoyed a beverage out of one of these before at some point in your life. Also a big part of the college ministry experience. <laughs> you guys got that. That's good. That's good. It makes me happy. The red solo cup. This is a side note. But doesn't it create this sort of like existential crisis though when we go to like a party? Because everybody has the same cup, right? And so what do you do? You either write your name on it like a nerd or you hold it the whole time, even if that means taking it with you to the bathroom because you don't want to put it down. Or you just sort of commit to the process, right? And you're like, okay, I'm just going to use 12 cups tonight. <laughs> and every time you put one down, you have to go find a new one somewhere else. Contributing to the environmental crisis in our world. Now, jokes aside, I want us to think about these two cups and the differences between them and invite us to think of them as a metaphor for our lives. My guess is that very few of us, if any of us, would choose a red solo cup life, generic and disposable. Most of us would choose a BU dad bug life, right? <laughs> Just rolls off the tongue. Right? We want to live a unique and irreplaceable, one-of-a-kind kind of life, for being honest. Most of us would probably choose that. Now, one of the primary invitations of the Psalms is an invitation to live authentically. Authentic is one of those words that is grossly overused in our society, even in the church. You know that when McDonald's starts using words like authentic and artisan, that... <laughs> <laughs> that those words have lost all meaning. <laughs> now, kind of cutting through some of the noise that our culture has created around this word and this idea, authenticity has to do with what is real and true. To live authentically is to align yourself, to orient yourself around what is true. We live in an age where truth is sort of up for conversation, right? This whole election season, there was a whole thing with fact-checking. We can't even agree on what the facts are anymore. And so we live in a world, we live in a culture that is, I think, craving truth. Maybe more importantly, craving, crying out for people who will live authentically. I think this is why we need the Psalms as much as we ever have since they've been written. The Psalms we've seen are raw and beautiful and brutally honest about the human experience. They're this loud reminder that everything is spiritual, that you can bring all of your frustrations, fears, anxieties, joys, wins, losses, pain, disappointment, anger, praise, gratitude, desire, all of this you can bring into your conversation with God. The Psalms help us take a hard look at what is real. And again, they extend this invitation to live authentically, to live oriented around what is really true about our world. So let's take a look at Psalm 16. We're going to break this up into four parts. We're actually going to start in part two. So looking at verse two. The author of this psalm is David. There's this little sort of note at the beginning. It says a mictum of David. Nobody knows what mictum means, okay? <laughs> most people think it's probably some sort of musical term. So this is a song, most likely, that David wrote. 
Verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is in all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. So this song begins, or at least verse 2 of this song begins with David recognizing that everything good that he has experienced in his life comes from God. This is an amazing statement of faith if you think about it, right? Most of the time, we want to take credit for the good things that happen in our life. We want to blame God for the bad. But David speaks the truth here that the New Testament affirms. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So David begins by recognizing good things come from God. He says this big yes, this big word of affirmation, you are my Lord. This is king language. You are my king. Now, when we say yes to something, that also requires saying no to something else. And so then that's what David begins to turn his attention to next. He said yes to God, yes to God as his king, yes to the good things that God provides. And then he begins to talk about some of the things that he's had to say no to. He says he won't speak other gods' names. He won't participate in other gods' rituals. This drink offering of blood is sort of interesting and weird. Drink offerings were a normal part of the Hebrew spiritual practice. There would oftentimes be a meal that included a drink, like a glass of wine, that would be sort of poured out on the altar before the regular sacrifice was made. But here, this practice, if you look at it, it's a drink offering, but it's a drink offering of blood, not of a beverage, and then it's actually being consumed. David says, I don't want anything to do with that. Partly because it's weird. (laughs) But again, partly because it's about saying yes to other gods. He won't do that. He won't run after other gods as some of these other folks are. This language echoes some language from Psalm 1. Remember in Psalm 1, we saw this progression of standing and walking and sitting. Here the image is running. Some translations even use the word hurrying. Hurrying after other gods. If you were here last Sunday, Pastor Albert talked about this and asked the question, was Jesus ever in a hurry? Do you ever, as you're reading through the Gospels, see, and then Jesus, in a big hurry, ran out of the house and forgot his keys. Like, that doesn't really happen, right? (laughs) Hurry is opposed in many ways to the ways of God. David says, I'm not going to run after other things. I'm not going to hurry after other gods. I will not even speak their name on my lips. I won't participate in their rituals. Instead, I recognize God as my king and that everything good in my life comes from him. And then notice the stark difference between David's delight and then the sorrow of those who are pursuing these other things, these other gods. Now, look at the third section. David goes on to describe some of the benefits of saying yes to Yahweh. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lions have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. 
In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. We get here a couple different pictures of the benefits of having a relationship with Yahweh. Portion, cup, and lot. Portion is relational language. This would have been a way of talking about where David's loyalties lie. Talking about exclusivity. To use a baseball analogy, the giants are my portion. If you're dating someone, you can use this as well. Babe, you're my portion. Try that one out. See how it works. <laughs> Again, what David is communicating here is that he is loyal to the Lord. He's loyal to Yahweh. Yahweh is his portion where his loyalties lie. Cups, a metaphor, a picture for God's love, his comfort, his strength, and fellowship. And then lots. Lots were used to gamble and to divine the future, kind of how we might use dice or cards. And so again, what David is saying here is his lot, his future, not tied to superstition, not tied to some nice idea of having good luck in his life, but to God. And then moving on down, it is God's counsel and instruction that guide him and steady him and which allowed David to say, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. Let's spend a moment with that picture. Lines, he's talking about boundary lines for a piece of property. David is saying the place, the context, the situation that God has placed him in is good. Many of us struggle with this, right? I know I do, with accepting that our boundary lines, the current situation that we are in in life is good. Now, I'm not saying, I don't think David is saying that God wants us to give up our ambitions or our dreams, our hopes for the future, anything like that. But this psalm does force us to wrestle with that question. Am I content with the boundary lines that God has given me for this season? Have they fallen for me in pleasant places? I think a lot of times we take a very disposable approach to place. But living authentically, living truthfully requires us to be rooted in a place. Requires that we accept our boundary lines. I think when we are able to do that, when we're able to accept that these boundary lines really are good, we begin to discover some of the good things that God has for us. So to sum up what we've been so far, David knows he's in the right place because he has oriented himself around God, who he is, his truth, his teaching, his instruction. And as a result, he can trust that the place that he is in is a good place and that he will not be shaken, he will not be moved. Now look at David's closing thoughts. Last couple of verses. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He begins with talking about this physical reality. David's heart is glad, his whole being rejoices. His flesh, his body, 
is secure. Now, we're not totally sure at what point in David's life he writes this song, but if you know anything about David's story, you know that there are many points along the way where his life, his body was not secure. As a shepherd, as a soldier, as the king to be on the run, as Saul, the king who was in position of power, was trying to kill him. He had people plot against him, even in his own family, when he did become king. David's life was rarely secure. Look back at verse 1, back to the beginning. He says, preserve me, O God. This is a psalm, a song that expresses a deep confidence in who God is, but it is born from this place of insecurity. Preserve me, oh God. So it took great faith for David to say all of this, to write all of this. I think it takes great faith for us to hear this as well. We are living in a time where many people do not feel secure, where bodies are not being protected. It's at this point that David begins to talk about death. Now, this word sheol is sort of a debated word as to what it really means in Old Testament scholarship. But it's kind of most basic meaning. It referred to a place where people were buried. It was a burial ground. And so David here is talking about his death. He says God won't abandon him to this place. God won't let his body see corruption. And we're not talking about under the table dealings here. We're talking about physical corruption, his body dying and being buried. So what it sounds like here is that David is saying that God is going to protect him from death. He's going to preserve his life. And I think that's certainly part of it. But in the New Testament, we see a couple different authors, Peter and Paul in particular, use this psalm to point us towards the resurrection of Jesus. Look at Acts 13. In this passage, Paul is preaching a long sermon to a Jewish audience. And he's trying to convince them that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, their Savior, that they've been waiting for for generations. And he's giving all these different reasons. And he says in verse 35, Therefore, he says also, he's talking about David here in another psalm, You will not let your Holy One see corruption. There's that verse from Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and did, in fact, see corruption. But he, now he's talking about Jesus, whom God raised up, did not see corruption. David, Paul is saying, ultimately dies. Even though he writes this incredible song of confidence in God and God's ability to preserve his life, David ultimately does die. But Jesus, Paul says, did not stay dead. As awesome as David was, certainly David a huge hero for Paul's Jewish audience, Jesus is greater. And so David, and who knows how much of this he fully understood, but David is pointing us towards this truth. Well before the resurrection of Jesus, he closes this song by expressing his confidence that even if he dies, that's not the end of the story. And so David, in his own way, is gently pointing us towards what is ultimately true. 
about God and about our world, that one day everything will be fully redeemed. Jesus himself says, I am making all things new. There will be a time when everything wrong is made right. Everything broken is put back together. And this is the perspective that David's song comes from. Even though he's writing from this place of insecurity, this place of uncertainty about the future, he's able to say with confidence, even if I die, it's not the end. In your presence, God, is fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Remember, the Psalms are partly about this invitation to authenticity, also about this invitation to a life of wisdom. An authentic life, a life of wisdom, whatever you want to call it, is built on this truth. Death is not the final word. Our story does not end there. There's more to this. There's more going on than that. Now, to kind of tie all of this together, hold verse 1 in your mind for a moment while we talk about genre. I know you're like, oh yes, conversation about genre. This is great. Scholars are in agreement that there are essentially three big categories of psalms. There's some subcategories that different people will point out, but there's essentially three big categories, the first of which are called hymns. A hymn is a psalm of joy. It's intended to be sung during a time when life is going well. These are what you might call psalms of orientation. Look at Psalm 98. First couple of verses of Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praise. That's a hymn. That's a song of joyful praise orienting the reader, the singer, around something that God has done. So there are psalms of praise, these hymns, and then there are laments. Lament is a psalm of disorientation. Would have been sung by someone who is in distress. Look at Psalm 143. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy. In your faithfulness, answer me. In your righteousness, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. The enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life into the ground. He's made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me. My heart within me is appalled. We need to sit with this for a moment, I think. I cannot stress how important it is that this is included in Scripture. Life is not all puppies and rainbows, right? Now, there's some theology out there that says, that sort of pushes this idea that, hey, because Jesus loves you, everything is good, just be happy, be positive all the time. You just don't see that, though, in Scripture. God absolutely desires for us to experience joy. Nobody wants to be Eeyore. <laughs> but be very wary. 
Be very wary of teaching and theology that is all him and no lament. Scripture makes room for laments. Remember, the Psalms are about the full disclosure of the human experience, the good and the bad, the beautiful and the ugly. The Psalms do not ask us to gloss over injustice or depression or suffering. The Psalms do invite us into the full experience of human life. And when we lean into those experiences, we discover the truth that God is indeed before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now to do that requires moving past him and lament into a different place. Erwin McManus writes, I think I've shared this quote with you guys before. He says, there are two kinds of uninteresting people. I just love the setup there. <laughs> there are those who have not suffered. In other words, there are those who are all hymns. And then there are those who are trapped in their pain. They're all lament. Suffering is all they know. They wallow in despair. They are all wounds and no scars. A red solo cup life will swing in one of these two directions. No suffering, all wounds, all hymns, all laments. Those can be very comfortable places for a lot of people. But true authenticity, the authentic life the Psalms invite us into is found in the tension between hymns and laments. And this is where we get the third big category, the third genre of Psalms. These are Thanksgiving Psalms. We might call them Psalms of Reorientation. Now, Thanksgiving is what we're going to do on Thursday when we eat turkey and watch football or whatever it is that you do on Thanksgiving. But more importantly, Thanksgiving is the result of moving through this process. Orientation, disorientation, reorientation. The process of being transformed by the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Psalm 16 happens to be a thanksgiving psalm. Back to verse 1. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is classic lament language. If you were singing this song in church for the first time, you would be thinking right from this very first lyric, we're going to start singing about some injustice or about some victory by our enemies or some tragedy that's befallen us. This is a lament song. David says, preserve me, I'm in trouble, but then he shifts gears to you are my Lord. And everything good that I've experienced in my life is from you. It's a Thanksgiving song. Now, there's a season for hymns, there's a season for laments. Maybe you are in one of those seasons. Things are going great. Celebrate that. Maybe you're in the middle of something really difficult. You're mourning something. Lament that. There's room for that in Scripture. There's room for that in community. There's room for that here. Authentic people and communities make room for celebration and for lament. But the gospel moves us through those to thanksgiving. I always think stories help us see this and understand this in a really powerful way. So I've invited my friend 
Michael Eugenio to come and share his story with us this morning. So welcome, Mike, and give your attention to him as he comes and shares for a few moments. Good morning, everybody. I wanted to share with you this morning a brief testimony. My name is Michael Eugenio. I grew up in Vallejo, California, raised by a family led by Christ, involved in many churches growing up through music, art, and worship, sharing the word alongside Christ and my family. I gave my heart to God when I was 11 years old, was saved and baptized with my family in attendance. As years passed, my mom became sick due to a staph infection and open heart surgery. Eventually, upon a normal visit, the doctor said she had only two hours to live. I was shocked, afraid, angry, sad, you name it. However, I just kept to myself, and we said our prayers, I love yous, and our goodbyes. Upon my mother passing, time seemed to have stopped the moment she closed her eyes. I honestly couldn't believe all this was happening, but it did. Sadness and anger settled in, along with the question we all know, why me? As time passed, my walk with Christ slowed down and eventually ceased. My life and heart seemed empty and lost, searching for a purpose, searching for happiness. I looked for happiness in the wrong places, sports, music, partying, people, etc. And by being busy with those activities with Christ on my mind, I thought I was happy. All happiness seemed to be in the moment. Stress always seemed to find its way during any activity, which would leave me distant from who I was around and what I was doing, including myself. I never practiced my faith as much as I should have or prayed enough. All of a sudden, my dad became sick. An extremely healthy man with no background of ever being ill was diagnosed with colon cancer. Many hospital appointments, visits, similar to of my mom, and was also informed during a visit he only had a few months to live. How speechless I was, sitting there in the waiting room thinking, how is this possible? Nearly the same situation I had already been through was happening again. Months passed, eventually we said our prayers, I love yous, and our goodbyes. The home in my heart became broken. I didn't have much of a will to do anything. Felt as if a heavy burden was weighing me down. Eventually, I moved here to Oakland with very little faith or a walk with Christ at all. Living, working, emptiness was with me, and after years of not attending church or surrounding myself with God-like or God-minded people, region was brought to me by a very close friend. And I realized you can't begin a new life without Christ. I started attending Regent more and more. It was rocky at first, although I stuck with it. All the times I thought Jesus wasn't for me, he definitely was. Eventually, Sundays weren't enough. The Word of God became something brand new. I felt as if Christ and I were re-meeting each other all over again, and we were so happy to see each other. God and his word became a necessity, and not only did I need it, I wanted it. Started attending Bridges Home Group, Regions Jiu-Jitsu class, learning and sharing the word of God and his word, and not only people of my church groups, but outside of church as well, in every way that I could. Without any realization, the brothers and sisters of my home group was now a family I was a part of. My walk with Christ was weak because of what life put me through, however, was strengthened because of what he did for me. Through the entire time I thought I wasn't with Christ, surely Christ was always with me. Now, I'm a Jesus-loving, God-fearing person who is involved with region all alongside Christ and my family. There is a home in my heart, and the love of Jesus Christ lives there. And I'd like to share a verse that has helped me go through with all this. 
over the years and over time. It's Romans 8, verse 38 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your brother in Christ, Michael. Pray with me as I pray for Mike. Father, we're grateful for Michael and the work that you've been doing in his life. Well, we would never wish any of those circumstances on him. It's clear that you've been with him and calling to him and taking care of him during some things that are really, really difficult. Thank you that he's found a home here, that he's found a new family, that you have helped create him into something new. Thank you for his story and the way that it speaks to us this morning, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a young man who is becoming more and more authentic every Sunday that I get to interact with him. There are no red solo cups in the kingdom of God. There's nothing generic about the person who has pursued God through this process, orientation, disorientation, reorientation. That person has become, and I think you heard this in Michael's story, a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. But this takes time. This is a process that we must move through. I want to share the rest of that Herman McManus quote from earlier. He says, we want to be a work of art, but we don't want the process of becoming a work of art. We have to allow ourselves the time to be recreated. We have to allow the proximity to be close enough to people and God for there to be a hands-on formation in our lives. Ultimately, an authentic life is one that has been shaped Formed by the love and the grace of God. Paul also writes this in that 2 Corinthians text, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's the love of Christ who gave himself up for us that transforms us into something unique and genuine and authentic into a work of art. So our question this morning is pretty simple. Are you allowing God to form you into something authentic and true and beautiful and new? Let's pray. Father, none of us would say that we desire a shallow generic life, a red solo cup life. And yet, for many of us, that's the life that we choose in a practical way, uh, day in and day out. And a big part of that is not allowing you to do your work in our life. So God, I pray this morning that we would have soft hearts, that you would break down any barriers that we have built up between us and you, that we would be able to say, like David, you are my king, you are my Lord, and everything good that I have comes from you. Father, do your work in us, shape us and form us into this new creation, into something beautiful and true. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.